0: Please be seated. Our speaker tonight is Professor Donna Orwin. Professor Orwin teaches in the Department of Slavic Literatures, Languages and Literatures at the University of Toronto. She is a member of the Board of Editors of the Slavic and East European Review and is the editor of the Tolstoy Studies Journal. Her book, Tolstoy's Art and Thought, was published by Princeton University Press and an excerpt from it appears in the new Norton edition of Anna Karenina. She has also published an annotation of Chekhov's play, The Seagull. She is editor of and a contributor to the forthcoming Cambridge Companion to Tolstoy. Her articles, lectures, and chapters in books include studies of the following. Childhood in Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Tolstoy and the concept of brotherhood. Love of others and self-love in Dostoevsky. And echoes in Dostoevsky's The Idiot of the Tolstoyan Return to Nature. Professor Orwin's lecture tonight is entitled The Politics of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky with special emphasis on the Brothers Karamazov. Please welcome Donna Orwin.
1: Thank you, I, I noticed that you rose, but you didn't applaud. So I was figuring that you'd wait to hear if there was anything to work, worthwhile clapping about. <laughs> uh, I'm coming to you from Canada. Uh, which is the place that most of you Yanks blame for cold weather, and I noticed that the uh, uh, last Sunday it was blamed for many other things as well. Uh, I uh, am very happy to be here. I want to thank the administration of the college for uh, inviting me. In, uh, in Ontario now, where I live, we have a premier who um, has announced that Uh, he no longer wants, he feels that that universities and colleges in Ontario graduate too many students in the liberal arts. He says he wants, he doesn't want any great thinkers. He just wants the technical equivalents of electricians and plumbers, uh, high-tech equivalents of these. So I feel as though I'm kind of a political refugee. I'm very happy to be in a place where uh, great thinkers and great writers are appreciated. Uh, so, with that uh, having said, I will discuss the political thought of two of these great writers. Oh, by the way, a Russian touch, I was just thinking of this when I, when I uh, came up, see this? This is a Soviet by holder for papers that was given to me many years ago, so, see how, see how shoddy it is? This is why the Soviet Union has changed. <laughs> yeah nonetheless I've kept it <clears throat> At the end of the Soviet Union over 10 years ago reopened a debate about Russian politics that most people myself included thought was concluded uh, with the 1917 revolution wary of politics from abroad and aware also that Russia cannot become economically prosperous without political stability In the post-Soviet period, Russians have turned to their own pre-revolutionary past and culture for indigenous political solutions. Even Vladimir Putin justifies his authoritarian intentions by claiming that extreme centralization is genetically Russian. Uh, As they do this, Russians have to rethink that past which had been neatly organized for them by Soviet scholarship into a drama that led inexorably and ended in 1917. Uh, With the future suddenly wide open, the past too is up for grabs. And that goes for the 19th century writers whom I study, who once again are playing political roles in Russia. But what were the politics of these writers? What I want to do today is to examine the political positions of two of the greatest of them, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. And I want to convince you that this is not as boring a subject as you might think. Uh, Both writers were pigeonholed by Soviet scholarship, but this is truer of Tolstoy than Dostoevsky. Tolstoy had the misfortune to be the favorite writer of Lenin. And he sat at the top of the Soviet pantheon of writers and had to be dressed accordingly in rough peasant garb as the voice of the narod. Dostoevsky barely made it into the building, and more plausibly in his case, he became the darling of those numerous people injured and insulted by the, Russian, by the Soviet regime. The injured and the insulted, as you may know, is the name of a, an early novel by Dostoevsky. The result has been a relative lack of interest in Tolstoy among post-Soviet Russians, who had their fill of the official Tolstoy, and a putsch that has placed Dostoevsky on the throne formerly occupied by Tolstoy. As a participant in the last two international Dostoevsky symposia, I have witnessed fierce battles among Russians over who secularists or Orthodox Christians can legitimately claim Dostoevsky as their spokesman. One such encounter in Austria in 1995 was so intense and partisan that the chairman had to cut it short and scheduled a special session to continue a debate that threatened to end in blows or to go on forever. Uh, The situation with Tolstoy is different. The pillars of the Tolstoy establishment still stand in Russia, and well-meaning scholars still control and limit the terms of debate on Tolstoy. They, however, are the only ones attending these debates. While uncontrolled discussion may be going on in private venues outside the hall. For us in the West, without knowledge of their context, the politics of both Tolstoy and Dostoevsky can seem simply outlandish. In the case of Dostoevsky, at least as a publicist, we lament a lack of democratic principles, while Tolstoy, especially the later openly anarchist Tolstoy, seems too democratic. Let me begin then by examining the situation in mid 19th century Russia in which the political opinions of both writers were formed. Both reached adulthood under the oppressive regime of Nikolai I. Nikolai's response to a revolt uh, by, basically, by aristocrats uh, desiring a constitutional monarchy at the beginning of which inaugurated his regime, was the policy of orthodoxy, autocracy, and nationalism. These were the this was the slogan of his regime, which his political advisers elaborated in the 1830s. Up until the Crimean War, most Russians within and without the government were satisfied with what they thought was a, perceived as a benevolent paternalism in which the Tsar alone had rights while everyone else had duties vis-a-vis the state. But a smooth surface concealed rotting from within at the heart of the whole system was serfdom, a pre modern practice that no one in the mid 19th century, not even the Tsar himself, considered just. A vast majority of the Tsar's subjects were slaves, just like in our country, whose consent to his regime was by definition never sought and whose well being was left in the hands of unsupervised noblemen. The Tsar himself was supposed to be the guarantor of justice everywhere. But the insurmountable problems of overseeing a vast bureaucracy from within the Tsar's palace led to the kind of lawlessness described in Gogol's works. We think Gogol is, is an absurd writer. His contemporaries thought that he was funny, but they didn't think he was absurd. They thought he was a realist. From 1848, with the outbreak of revolution in Europe until he died in 1855, Nicholas imposed what even his loyal subject, the bureaucrat Tienko, who kept an invaluable diary recording his, public, his private reactions to public affairs, called a holy war against scholarship and knowledge. By the, time, by the end of Nikolai's reign, only toadies and time servers bothered to seek a career in the public service. In the later period that I am discussing, there was another source of Russian radicalism besides this situation. It stemmed paradoxically from the greatest political reform initiated by the autocracy, namely the emancipation of the serfs. This act in 1861 was followed by a series of changes known as the great reforms in the structure of government. Such things as the juries, independent, an independent judiciary came into being at this time in 1864, that's one of the reforms. And you know in the Brothers Karamazov that there's a trial. And that's about the jury system, among other things. These took place over two decades until the assassination of Tsar Alexander II in 1881 ushered in a period of political reaction under Alexander III. The abolition of serfdom and its aftermath threw Russia into a state of permanent political crisis that one might now say is still unresolved, even today. Everything was up for grabs politically, as both the economic and the political foundation of the old regime was destroyed in a single stroke with the proclamation of freedom for the serfs on February 19th, 1861. This is the context in which Dostoevsky wrote his novels, and it's very, very important to remember this. War and Peace was written after the emancipation of the serfs. Even before February 19th, Serious debate had already switched from whether to free the serfs, everybody of good conscience agreed on that, to how to redefine the country in the absence of serfdom. What we know as the Russian intelligentsia developed its broad base in the educated classes after emancipation and it occupied itself with the creation of a new regime for Russia. It was in this giddy and also terrifying atmosphere of freedom from tradition that Alexander Herzen, a great Russian writer and thinker, once spoke of the individual as both the woof, or the material, and the weaver of the carpet of history. The young men who are philosophizing in Dostoevsky's taverns, you know, Ivan and Alyosha, were not engaging in idle chatter. They were inventing their own lives and fantasizing solutions to pressing social and political problems at the same time. Dostoevsky and Tolstoy came from very different parts of the dangerously antiquated old regime. Tolstoy was an aristocrat whose father had served as an officer in the Napoleonic Wars. He was captured and had been freed in 1814 during the conquest of Paris. Nikolai Tolstoy, the father, served in the government only from 1819 until 1824 when he retired to his wife's estate at yasne Polyana, where Tolstoy was born. In 1828. The Tolstoys, with 800 serfs, were independently wealthy but members of an aristocracy whose political role in the Empire had been steadily eroded under the Romanov tsars. Tolstoy himself drew upon his own biography when he described young Dmitri Olenin, the hero of the Cossacks, on the eve of his departure to the Caucasus. And this is a novel that was finished in 1861. So again, written around the time of the emancipation of the serfs, although the time that's being described in Tolstoy's life was in the the early 1850s. At the age, my students love this. They, They love this exploration of a man who really was free. Unlike them, he didn't have parents, for instance, and he wasn't at university. At the age of 18, he was free as only rich young Russians in the 40s who had lost their parents at an early age could be. Neither physical nor moral fetters of any kind existed for him. He could do as he liked, lacking nothing and bound by nothing. Neither relatives, nor fatherland, nor religion, nor wants existed for him. Olenin is careful not to commit himself to anything or anyone that would diminish this freedom, but he's also consciously searching for a goal, what he calls an aspiration or an idea, for which he could sacrifice himself and his freedom. So he wants to sacrifice himself. Uh, This sense of personal freedom and idealism was typical of gentry youth on the eve of the emancipation that had left them without a significant past and in charge of their own futures. So I'm trying to put you into the psychological mindset, to use an awful word, of, of... Alyosha and Ivan, and the others. Tolstoy once commented to his friend and biographer, Elmer Maud, an Englishman, that Russians were freer than Englishmen because they had to occupy themselves with politics. From the other side of the fence, Maud speculated that their isolation, Russian isolation from the hard practical tasks of governing, made Russians prone to extremely radical solutions, Maud's words. Of Tolstoy himself, he said that, quote, Tolstoy had no adequate sense of being a responsible member of a complex community with the opinions and wishes of which it is necessary to reckon. He wasn't in a St. John situation. On the contrary, <clears throat> his tendency was to recognize with an extraordinary vividness a personal duty revealed by the working of his own conscience and intellect apart from any systematic study of the social state of which he was a member. Maud's words. Like Olenin, the young Tolstoy was looking for something to which to dedicate his life. He was interested in politics, and in the 1840s, while he was a student at the University of Kazan, he wrote a commentary on Catherine the Great's uh, instruction or nakaz, which she had written uh, as a Montesquieuian doc- document. A career in the government was out of the question for Tolstoy, of course, under Alexander, the, under, pardon me, under Nicholas I. But he did join the army. He was an artillery officer. He served on the front lines uh, in very, very heavy, bloody combat during the Crimean War. And he witnessed the corruption and favoritism that, in his mind, scuttled the heroic efforts of Russian soldiers on the battlefield. Like Prince Andrei in War and Peace, he suggested reforms to his superiors, but got nowhere. Tolstoy's later political anarchism derives, in part, from such disillusionments. His early experience suggested to him that a meaningful, dignified life could be lived only outside politics. And this became his lifetime opinion. In his fiction, his characters undergo undergo educations that turn them away from politics, just as he turned away. Moral education is more important for him than than, uh, political education, and he connects political or social change with individual change wrought by education. Yet, Inasmuch as Tolstoy's writings almost all concern the relation of the individual to society, they have a political purpose. He sought, paradoxically for us, for a social organization which would be outside of representative government, because he didn't believe in representative and gov- government. But why should we have believed in this? No matter how many reforms the Romanovs, liberal reforms the Romanovs introduced to modernize Russia, during Tolstoy's lifetime, starting after the defeat of the Crimean War, none of them willingly gave away one iota of power. Every one of them reserved for himself the right to override the law, and by so doing, rendered the law illegitimate. Is it surprising that Tolstoy regarded political organizations as essentially unjust, as attempts by the strong to oppress the weak? This is truly what they were in Russia of his lifetime. On the Russian ship of state, manned by peasants and commanded by the tsar and his bureaucracy, while the Tolstoy's idled or fretted their their time away in first-class cabins, the Dostoevskys labored in steerage. Dostoevsky's father was a medical doctor, the son of a priest, whose greatest dream was to rise through the bureaucratic table of ranks to the level where he would be granted noble status for himself and for his descendants. He achieved this ambition, at which point he bought a little estate, complete with serfs, where his family summered while he continued his medical practice in the Hospital for the Poor in Moscow. Dostoevsky's fathers, all absorbing interest in social status, which led, by the way, to to abuse of his serfs when he did acquire them, and Dostoevsky believed, to his murder by his serfs, may have fed Dostoevsky's interest in what Jean-Jacques Rousseau dubbed the corrosive passion of amour-propre. This passion was neither truly social in the sense that it led people to sacrifice themselves for others or for their community, nor was it asocial. According to Rousseau, it replaced natural self-love with a self-love that depended fatally upon the esteem in which others hold us. So we love ourselves and that's all there is, but others have to confirm our self-worth to us. In any case, Dostoevsky's father, like the father of Dostoevsky's beloved writer, Charles Dickens, provided ample material for the study of this passion. And in general, it was very highly developed within Russia's hierarchical society. You, surely you recognize this, uh, the Snigeriov, for instance, and the brothers that you've read, but many other, many of Dostoevsky's characters are people low in the social pecking order whose damaged but still potent sense of self-love is, is expressed through the convoluted dialectics of Amor Propra. In his early stories, Dostoevsky treated Amor propre as a product of social inequality. He also joined a political group dedicated to the abolition of serfdom. And in 1849, he was sentenced to be executed for participation in a plot to distribute subversive flyers amongst the peasants. I'll just, I can't tell you this story, but it's an incredible story. The sentence was commuted literally at the last minute. The scaffolds were there. The soldiers were ra- raised their rifles. Uh, a troika rushes into the square from the Tsar, a courier. And the sentence is commuted at, last, at the last moment to hard labor. An incredible act by our wonderful Nikolai I, the, the combination of his satisfying himself about what a kind man he was and the incredible cruelty of the punishment he inflicted on these people. So it was commuted at the last moment to hard labor and then to exile in Siberia, from which Dostoevsky returned only in 1859. Although in later life he ceased to be a revolutionary, he continued to believe that the solution to the problem of Amor propre was to create a society In which each person confirmed the value of all others and in turn had his own value confirmed by them the young Tolstoy was interested also in problems of armor proper he too had read Rousseau but he arrived at them from a different direction in childhood his first work the young gentleman Nikolinka records the appearance of this passion in himself And he laments the passing of an early self harmony and confidence about himself and his relation to others. Uh, Tolstoy, unlike Dostoevsky, and at least in part because of his aristocratic differing background, imagines a situation in which we can live freely without depending upon the opinion of others for our sense of self worth. So, this psychological distinction between Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and their their different psychologies is going to play a very important part in my discussion of their politics. However different their perspectives of the two men might have been, both were reacting to the fact that they lived within a political regime in which they were subjects, not citizens. Both, as a result, were fundamentally concerned with personal dignity for themselves and others, and both regarded this as essential to human happiness. Both of them were living at a time when these concerns which seemed merely individual or psychological to us, had a fundamental political importance, extending even to the question of the establishment of a valid and accepted social contract that would reconstitute the Russian state, which had been destroyed by the Emancipation Proclamation. Already in 1871, Dostoevsky published a book, which you may have read, The Devils, or The Possessed, as it's called in English, based on a sensational murder within a revolutionary cell created in St. Petersburg. From the late 1870s, determined persecution by the government of radical groups heightened the sense of crisis in the country. Uh, Perhaps because he lived longer into the more even, even more troubled last decades of the, of the century, Tolstoy was politically more radical than Dostoevsky. Starting in the early 1880s, he called for the dissolution of the state, get rid of the state, and the establishment in its place of a universal Christian brotherhood in which all men, living in loosely organized small communities, supported themselves, and no one tyrannized over his fellows. This may sound weird to you, but I can tell you that it had tremendous resonance in 19th century America. And, Tolst- and Tolstoy was read even more uh, broadly, perhaps in America than in Russia, because in Russia his works were banned and they were immediately, tre- many of his works appeared in English in the United States and England, long before they were ever published in Russian at home. And, and uh, the story of Dostoevsky and the Americans is a fascinating story in itself. This is not an old hall, but if you were sitting in a hall that's as old as as uh, some of the buildings here, there could have been a Tolstoy, not Tolstoy himself, but a Tolstoyan standing up here lecturing you and arguing for these very concepts. Uh, <clears throat> in his book, which he called, So What Then Should We Do?, which he wrote, Uh, which was written from 1882 to 1886, he argued, Tolstoy argued, that governments only serve to help the rich and powerful oppress the poor. The military, too, existed primarily to carry out this goal. The privileged claim that they have freed themselves from the universal natural necessity of working so that they can be of use to others. But Tolstoy argues that, quote, there is not one government or societal activity which would not be considered by many people to be harmful. You see the radicalism that Maud is talking about? And for that reason, the so-called usefulness of which the privileged speak is always imposed by force on the people it is supposed to help. There is therefore no such thing as a government to which every member of society has given his consent, and only such a government would be just. All rulers, democratic or otherwise, if they speak the truth, admit that, quote, their main motivation is their own personal advantage. Uh, Even at this time in the 1880s, Tolstoy warned that a revolution of the working classes was not only imminent, but had been averted only by guile for the last 30 years, that is, since the death of Nicholas I and defeat in the Crimean War. Uh, By 1900, which was 15 or so years later, 1885 to 1900, in a a long essay called The Slavery of Our Times, which I found in a, uh, I have a copy of it in a book published in the 1920s in America. And I'm going to quote from that book. Tolstoy's indictment of existing Russian society had broadened to include all modern solutions to societal ills, including Marxism, which became important and widely known in Russia in the 1890s. He argued bluntly that so long as people, rich and poor, insisted on living at the present standard of prosperity, slavery would be necessary to maintain it. The problem, according to him, was not as easy as improving the conditions of workers who were themselves corrupted by city life. What was needed was a return to a simpler agricultural way of life in which people did meaningful work and lived in natural surroundings. Whatever cooperation was needed in such a community would be supplied locally and agreed upon by all. According to him, quote, the laboring people, both in Europe and in Russia, are more and more emerging from childhood and beginning to understand the true conditions of their lives. I have a wonderful long quote from this book, but I think that I'll skip it because our main emphasis is going to be on the Brothers Karamazov um, Let's see if I can pick out a couple of... It's, the thing about it is that it's so convincing. That's what I love about this book. That's the thing about Tolstoy. You hate his conclusions and he convinces you every step of the way and then, and then you're in a bind. Um, for Tolstoy, political instincts are the evil that must be overcome in order for the kingdom of God to be established. Self-overcoming and moderation are at the heart of his political solution. Practically, the least believable part of his political program is his claim that if every individual only considered his own self-interest, then we would all moderate our passions and live in harmony. Thousands of years of historical evidence to the contrary does not sway Tolstoy from this simple idea. He blames all the injustices of the past on the crimes of the rich and powerful, but he seems to think that in the future, these same spoilers can be talked out of their past behavior. In the tracks that I've been telling you about, he presents the rewards of this past behavior as all connected to physical, material existence. The powerful want to rule the weak so that they don't need to work themselves and so that they can indulge bodily passions. But, although he does not emphasize it in these polemical tracts, which are no longer read today, but which were so widely read then, which you've never read, he has not forgotten the love of glory, which Prince André defines in War and Peace, as the desire that others, even those whom he looks down upon, love him. This passion requires politics, because it can only be fulfilled within a social context. Prince André, you will recall, is mighty in spirit, but small and sickly in body. And What I Believe, which is also translated into English as My Religion and was one of the most widely read texts. Absolutely, people read it just coming out of college and were converted by it. Jane Addams, for instance, the founder of Hull House, writes in her memoirs of how she read My Religion when she had just graduated from college and it changed her life. This was another seminal text from the 1880s. Tolstoy asserts there that the striving for earthly happiness which, although he does not mention it, includes at its pinnacle, the love of glory, arises out of fear of death. We indulge our passions and seek to extend our existence by controlling others in an effort to forget and even avoid death. But since death is inevitable, we would be wise to give up these useless and unjust activities and to live within the boundaries of natural, of material necessity. And he says, isn't it senseless? to toil over what, no matter how you try, will never be completed. Death will always come sooner than the tower of your worldly happiness. And if you know beforehand that no matter how much you battle with death, it will defeat you, isn't it better not to do battle with it at all and not to put your heart into it, into what will surely perish, but to seek an activity that will not be destroyed by inevitable death? Very powerful words. The very same fear of death that should, according to Tolstoy, moderate the passions, sparks a rebellion in Dostoevsky's characters. They will not be tamed by knowledge of necessity or the injunction, be reasonable. It is no accident that the underground man refuses to accept that two times two always equals four, while Tolstoy in his confession uses this same equation to stand for unassailable truth. And Dostoevsky considered the underground man his most important and profound creation because he knows the good, but he can't do it. Dostoevsky agrees with Tolstoy that goodness consists in self-mastery and self-sacrifice and that a good man must control his passions, but he does not believe that people can be truly good, that is, capable of disinterested love of others just because their reason convinces them to be so. People, according to Dostoevsky, are emotional, not reasonable, and they are always motivated either by self-love or by love of others. The underground man wallows in self-love and self-pity, but at the same time, keenly feels their inadequacy to make him happy. He hungers to love someone else, because only this will make him happy and good. But his self-love always intrudes to make a pure love of others impossible. And this is where it stands for Dostoevsky, The suffering is the sign of a spiritual thirst that we by ourselves can never slake. In this sense, we are radically incomplete as individuals, and we need others to affirm and complete ourselves. Only a miracle from another world, however, only Christianity transmitted through tradition and community, in other words, through other people, can allow us to love others rather than to exploit them. This difference... Uh, between the psychologies of the two writers had profound consequences for their politics. For Tolstoy, individuals are mostly self-contained and do not need others, at least beyond the family. In the right setting, they can be led through their reason to a moderation of passions which makes political organization mostly unnecessary. The political passion itself, which is responsible for most government and consists in the desire to control the wills and lives of others, is irrational and always bad and it can be tamed. For Dostoevsky, neither of these conditions for peaceful Christian anarchy is possible. Human beings are emotional and in motion, not rational and at peace. They are naturally social because naturally needy. The weak need the guidance of the strong, and the strong want and cannot not want to give that guidance. It is this insight that underlines underlies the political teaching of the brothers Karamazov. In the late 1870s, just when Tolstoy in Anna Karenina shocked his readers by his criticism of Russia's involvement in the Serbian battle for liberation from the Turks, Dostoevsky in his diary of a writer was openly advocating an orthodox messianism which justified Russia's participation in the war. And it's just after this that he writes the brothers Karamazov. He confided to his young philosopher friend, Vladimir Solovyov, that the central idea of his novel was going to be the church as the positive social ideal. And this, for Solovyov, who reports this, meant in practical terms that the church was to be a model for a perfect state, whose political form therefore would be theocracy. As usual, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky seem very far apart and, as usual, on second glance and in hindsight, they have much in common. Specifically, both call for a community of human beings united by Christian love. But for Tolstoy, this required the dismantling of particular states, while for Dostoevsky, it required refounding or reforming the state and the church, for that matter, on different foundations than pagan or secular ones. Tolstoy based his universal Christian brotherhood on the teaching of Jesus and the Gospels, which in his opinion, the church, Henry, and dogmatic, the Catholic church, that is, and dogmatic, Henry and I, my old friend Henry Higuera and I have been discussing these issues all day long, <clears throat> the Catholic church and dogmatic theology had distorted for the same self-centered or self-interested reasons that lead the powerful to establish governments. So the church in the West has been corrupted in this pagan way. Dostoevsky followed the Slavophiles and Solovyov in seeing the church, the Eastern church, uncorrupted as it was, as essential to the establishment of a truly Christian society or the kingdom of God on earth. Tolstoy's Protestantism, as it was perceived to be in the Russian context, one of the reasons for his tremendous uh, popularity in America, stemmed from his Christian egalitarianism. In his opinion, no individual is superior to any other, and therefore no one has the right to rule over others. Morality, in fact, consists of keeping your own house in order and respecting the freedom and dignity of others. Dostoevsky would have agreed with Tolstoy, and in fact, his poetics were based upon the dynamics of reciprocal respect for others. But. Whereas Tolstoy thought that each person could be morally self-sufficient, however, and this would lead to a universal brotherhood, Dostoevsky believed that people were so free in the first sense of this term, and therefore the temptations of passion and evil were so great that only within the Christian church could a truly moral society be founded. Only within such a society could sinners be saved and returned to the community of believers. The radical freedom of which Dostoevsky conceived made men naturally unfinished, imperfect, and their perfection could only take place within society. Okay. Now I want to focus on the politics of Dostoevsky's theocracy as elaborated in the Brothers Karamazov. In the novel, the relationship between the monastery and the town raises the issue of church and society. Zosima as elder bridges the two worlds by receiving penitents and petitioners and this is regarded as a suspiciously worldly activity by some of the monks because of the role he plays in the taming of wild russian past passions both zosima and the very idea of the elder are introduced in book one which is called which is called the history of a certain little family this book one devoted to the history of the karamazovs rather than in book two, which takes place in the monastery. So Zosima's over there in the world, you see? Zosima will be the father that Alyosha never had, replacing his wildly irresponsible biological father. Dostoevsky devotes a lot of time to explaining exactly what an elder is and does. And here's the heart of his definition, coming right at the beginning of the book from the narrator. What then is an elder? An elder is one who takes your soul and your will into his soul and into his will. Having chosen an elder, you renounce your will and you give it to him under total obedience and with total self-renunciation. A man who dooms himself to this trial, this terrible school of life, does so voluntarily in the hope that after the long trial, he will achieve self-conquest and self-mastery to such a degree that he will finally through a whole life's obedience, attain to perfect freedom, that is, to freedom from himself, and avoid the lot of those who live their whole lives without finding themselves in themselves. The key to the relationship being described and what makes it different from the master-slave political relationships contem- condemned by Tolstoy is, of course, the word voluntary. The individual voluntarily submits his will to that of the elder in the hopes that he will obtain the self mastery that Tolstoy believed was available to each individual independent of his relations with others. This voluntary submission constitutes a sacrifice of self and hence a love of and trust in another individual that Tolstoy would consider psychologically impossible. With such power over others, it is no wonder that the institution of the elder was controversial in the monasteries. Its goal was to help free men from their passions. But Dostoevsky recognized that such a relationship could be tyrannical in the wrong hands. And to continue this discussion of the elder at the beginning of the book, it is true, perhaps, that this tested and already thousand-year-old instrument for the moral regeneration of man from slavery to freedom and to moral perfection may turn into a double-edged sword, which may lead a person not to humility and ultimate self-control, but on the contrary to the most satanic pride, that is to fetters and not to freedom. Dostoevsky couples the word satanic with pride and lack of freedom. Limitless power over another person and the consequent potential for abuse links Father Zosima and the institution of the elder with the grand inquisitor. The distinction between the two leaders lies in Dostoevsky's opinion, in atheism or belief, which Dostoevsky associates with hate or love. The Grand Inquisitor's secret is that he's an atheist. Unlike the Grand Inquisitor, who despises his subjects and rules them by fear, Zosima is even said to love the greatest sinners the most. Dostoevsky has been criticized by some Russian Orthodox thinkers for his psychologizing of religion the great miracle of Christianity, according to Dostoevsky, the miracle that replaces wonder-working icons and other suspensions of the laws of nature, is a mis- mysterious ability of human beings, against all apparent experience and psychology, to love others. This miracle Father Zosima embodies in himself, and it is a miracle that Dostoevsky seeks to justify psychologically. Now, see if you agree with his justification. There is a hidden rivalry between Zosima and Ivan Karamazov, the creator of the legend of the Grand Inquisitor. And incidentally, the article, the author of an article recommending that ecclesiastical courts replace civil and criminal courts in Russia. Remember that's discussed in the uh, first meeting in the monastery. It is he who has sown doubts about religion in the silly Madame Hochlakova and her daughter, Lise. He introduces the idea that everything is permitted to his brother Dmitri and his possible half-brother Smerdyakov. He tries to woo Alyosha away from Zosima and Christianity with his tales about the torture of innocent children, and it is he who according to his half-brother Smerdyakov is morally responsible for the murder of their father because he gave Smerdyakov permission to commit it. Like the Grand Inquisitor, Ivan hates almost everyone whom he tries to influence. And like him, he is an atheist, or is he? You'll notice that he contradicts himself on that issue. Smerdyakov's relation of moral dependency on Ivan resembles that which the Grand Inquisitor claims to exist between his subjects and himself. In other words, the Grand Inquisitor would be Ivan and the subject would be Smerdyakov. During the whole time period in which the novel takes place, however, Ivan differs from the Grand Inquisitor in one crucial respect. He's in love. And this is what draws him potentially into Zosima's sphere. He's in love with Katarina Ivanovna. All of Ivan's behavior in the book, reading Dostoevsky is very tough, at least I certainly found, but if you follow these little plot lines and they're so confusing, the clarity begins to emerge just by following the plot. All of his behavior in the book, his activity in the town, happens while he is in love with Katerina Ivanovna and feels rejected by her. Like Bazarov, do you read Fathers and Sons? No, okay, well, maybe some of you have read it. Like Bazarov in Turgenev's Fathers and Sons, who is one of the models for I- Ivan, Ivan's unexpected passion forces him to desert his official position of skeptical observer and outsider. If Vyacheslav Ivanov, one of the great Tolstoy, uh, Dostoevsky critics, is right that there is only one moment of true moral freedom in Dostoevsky when we choose to be for God or against him, and then Ivanov argues, then you're set. You, know, you either you, you, you behave in one way or you behave in the other, but the choice is that choice. Then Ivan may be seen, be, may be seen to be standing at that crossroads during the entire novel. That's why he says sometimes he's an atheist and sometimes he says he believes. Note that Ivanov's posing of the question denies the possibility of that objective, disinterested stance that Ivan would like to assume. The posture of the supposedly disinterested observer is in fact a prideful rebellion against God that brings with it evil consequences and a completely determined set of actions. On the level of plot, Ivan's moral dilemma is expressed through his indecisiveness about whether to reveal that Smerdyakov committed the murder. If he does, he admits his own guilt as an accomplice in the, murder, in the murder and almost as important for Ivan, he makes a fool of himself in public. He would have to abandon his preferred position of skeptic and judge of others for the chaos and shame of penitence. So the secret of Zosima's success as a leader is his love of others. But how could a man as good and as psychologically acute as Zosima love everyone? The answer to this question resolves around the status of pride in the novel, and in Dostoevsky's psychology as a whole. Dostoevsky believed that every potential political leader, and this is what Ivan with his articles on political reform aspires ultimately to be, has to go through a kind of baptism of shame, which is a crisis for natural self-love and pride that is experienced as a kind of death of the self. Remember how Ivan's face begins to take on the color of death of, of the earth? Ivan's brain fever, that wonderful brain fever that is ubiquitous in Dostoevsky's novels, is a symptom and result of his crisis. Father Zosima also has a kind of crisis of pride that is recounted in his own words in book six of the novel, which is called The Russian Monk, which Dostoevsky intended as his his refutation of Ivan's Grand Inquisitor. Dostoevsky wrote his editor that Zosima's autobiography was intended to be a portrayal of a positively good man. And he wrote this to his editor. He said, if I can bring it off, I will have accomplished something useful. I will force them to admit that a pure and ideal Christian is not an abstraction, but a tangible real possibility that can be contemplated with our own eyes. Dostoevsky wants this character to be psychologically convincing. And to do so, I would contend, to make him that way, he shows him evolving from a typical man of pride, like Ivan, who would ordinarily make considerations of personal honor the center of his life into a kind of saint who renounces pride for the sake of a higher honor. Dostoevsky prepares us for this possibility by having certain characters perceive Zosima as simply proud. For instance, to the prickly and vain Meusef, you remember Meusef, the landowner who's at the, uh, he sort of drops out as the novel goes on, but at the beginning of the novel, who's at the uh, monastery, he appears, first appears as, quote, to all appearances, a malicious and pettily arrogant little soul. That's Meusef on Zosima. And in a speech so blasphemous that it makes Alyosha fall into a fit, old Karamazov compares Zosima to Mephistopheles, and to Pichorin, the central character in Lermontov's Hero of Our Times, another great Russian novel. We readers are meant to take these allegations of Fyodor Pavlovich Karamazov seriously because the earthy old sinner is an expert at ferreting out low motivations in the high-minded. Now, as to this Pichorin in Hero of Our Times, out of pride and a desire to prove his superiority, this Pechorin seeks one conflict after another. Like Pichordan, Zosima was a military officer and as an officer like Pichordan, Zosima was mostly concerned with honor. Zosima, in fact, represents the conversion that he goes on to describe as a discovery of what honor really is. Both Meusef and old Karamazov see Zosima through atheistic eyes. The miracle that causes Zosima's conversion from officer to monk is not apparent to them And his psychological state as a monk is interpreted by them to be the same as that of the officer. This miracle is shown to arise out of the mysterious interaction of choice and chance in people's lives. In the novel, notice this now, and this, this is very much about the uh, uh, different interpretations of what happened in the murder. You'll notice that different stories are told about how the murder took place. At the trial, for instance. In the novel, deterministic psychological explanations are given for crimes. For instance, the mysterious stranger Mikhail explains that he had murdered his beloved out of a vengeful, jealous anger. All right. That we know, you know, we read the papers. We know why people murder their beloveds. By contrast, Zosima's conversion interrupts, Zosima's conversion interrupts a psychological sequence involving honor and jealousy that's also leading to murder. Zosimus slaps his manservant in a moment of passion. He's influenced by the same angry pride that has made him provoke a duel with the husband of a woman whom he believes has spurned him. And if any of you have read Kreutzer Sonata by Tolstoy, you know that first comes the slap and then comes the murder. then his conscience, Zosima's conscience, speaking in hindsight, reprimands him. Zosima has this attack of conscience as he stands by the window. And it may be that the early summer weather affects him. And now comes another step in his conversion. Anyway, that's a chance moment. as he sees it himself. In this softened mood, he remembers his dying brother's words from many years before. So a seed planted in his consciousness long ago now puts up shoots in his soul. Note that the two incidents that I'm discussing, the murder by the mysterious stranger and Zosima's conversion, both have parallels in other stories in the novel. The stranger plunges his knife into his lover's heart, but for some reason, Dmitri does not murder his father. And Zosima, for some reason, pays attention to the presence in his soul of something evil, while Ivan, in his crucial conversation with Smerdyakov, doesn't pay attention to that thing take it into account. Zosima has no reason to be particularly proud of his conversion, since in other circumstances he he might simply have moved on unimpeded to the duel and committed a murder. Zosima therefore is grateful rather than proud, since as his brother has, just as his own brother, Markel, remember whose story he tells, is joyfully grateful on his deathbed that for some reason he has overcome his own religious skepticism and embraced Christianity again. <clears throat> Zosima's brother had asked whether he should be served by others during his last illness. Now, Zosima asks the same question about his servant Athanasi. And furthermore, he asks, as his brother had asked, whether he is not guilty before all others. It is only by asking this question that human beings can enter the state of grace. Um, I'm laughing because... Uh, Chester here gave a wonderful, the hydraulic theory of suffering, I believe you called that from your days of reading, Brothers Karamazov, that everyone is guilty for everything else. It is only by asking this question, whether you're not actually guilty before all others, that human beings can enter the state of grace that animals experience naturally. Uh, Yet the world of guilt is very much the human world, very much the world of good and evil and of judgment, but not of judgment of others. By proclaiming his own guilt, Zosima puts himself lower than the low, but he also declares himself at the same time to be morally responsible for his own actions, because there'd be nothing to be guilty for, right, if he hadn't been responsible for them. And therefore, a morally free, dignified human being. And in this sense, it's in this sense that he gratifies the desire for honor that is at the root of his pride. The Grand Inquisitor rules by authority and fear. Zosima rules by humility and love. And these qualities give Zosima an authority that, allow, that allows others to trust him and to confess to him. The progression of his, the procession of his life from secular to religious also gives Zosima a wisdom that the simply good man, for instance Alyosha at the beginning of the novel, would not possess. And it is for this reason among others that Zosima sends Alyosha out into the world where he too will be tempted and often fall. So, Actually, Alyosha undergoes an education in the novel, too. He's too good to begin with. He has to learn how not to be so good. Both Tolstoy and Dostoevsky agree that pride, along with other inflated passions and perhaps more and perhaps more than these others, is responsible for injustice. Tolstoy calls for a moderation of pride and other passions that would allow humankind to abandon politics almost altogether. But Dostoevsky does not believe this to be possible or even desirable. So in The Brothers Karamazov, he illustrates a psychological process by which certain superior human beings come to understand that their superiority itself can only be established by self-mastery and beyond that by the assumption of responsibility for all human actions. The first goal, the self-mastery, is shared by Tolstoy. But the second goal, The allowing the man of pride to assert a mastery only, not only over himself, but over others. This is what Tolstoy cannot accept. In Dostoevsky, the truly superior man who is worthy of serving as a political leader will guide people by his example. He will proclaim his own shame. He will advise them because he himself is, in Dostoevsky's great phrase, broad by temperament and therefore knows all the temptations to which they have been subjected. And note, by the way, that old Karamazov even claims momentarily, although he recants on this, that Zosima called himself broad in this sense. Zosima never said that, but but Karamazov has Zosima saying that. For the same reason, he, the leader, will not regard them as as his, his inferiors, nor will he lord his superiority over them. This kind of leader will also do away with the other great impediment to a successful polity, namely the unwillingness of others to be led. Even the craven Smerdyakov partakes of a limitless vanity. His acceptance of Ivan as his conscience has more to do with disassociating himself from the moral consequences of what he wants to do than it has to do with that voluntary submission of one's will to another that is the essence of the elder noviciate relationship. Zosima's posture as a leader disarms the pride of even the most sinful and rebellious of his subjects. And here's what Zosima says. One may stand perplexed before some thought, especially seeing men sin, sin, asking oneself, shall I take it by force or by humble love? You see the sinner and you say, well, shall I tell him that he's a sinner or should I use love in some way? Always resolve to take it by humble love. If you resolve once and for all, you will be able to overcome the whole world. A loving humility is a terrible power, the most powerful of all. This is what Zosima says in that book that you probably skipped of his sayings, The Russian Monk. Nothing compares to it. No wonder that Zosima follows this with advice to leaders about how to love others and to be truly humble. Only his inner state of grace separates him at this moment from the Grand Inquisitor. So far, I have presented Dostoevsky's political program as I think he saw it. It combines the theocratic ideal with Dostoevsky's deeply realistic understanding of human psychology. As most of you are probably aware, Dostoevsky held specific views that are deeply abhorrent. He hated or despised most foreigners, and he especially hated Jews, whose persecution under the reign of Alexander III was partly inspired by his ideas. This was. After, after Dostoevsky was dead. Dostoevsky's own admirers, beginning with the philosopher Solovyov, tried to distinguish the Dostoevskian idea of theocracy from the quote, and I'm quoting Solovyov, host of deep-rooted prejudices, preconceived ideas, and elemental national instincts which were within him and which Dostoevsky expressed in his works without noticing their contradiction with the universal ideal he proclaimed. It may be that Solovyov and these defenders are right. But another more disturbing view of the matter is possible, one that accords, moreover, with the binary dynamics of Dostoevsky in psychology. In order to love others with whom we do not naturally identify, we may need enemies with whom to contrast those loved ones. In Dostoevsky in psychology, strong feelings come in pairs, with feelings of intense attraction followed by equally intense feelings of repulsion. The love of country that Dostoevsky felt may imply an equally strong hatred of enemies, which is incompatible with Christian principles. Tolstoy certainly believed this, and this was another reason why he came to reject patriotism. If this is so, then it would pose an insurmountable obstacle to a Christian state that that was not universal. Unlike Tolstoy, and like Solovyov, Dostoevsky seems to advocate something close to traditional Russian autocracy. His emphasis on consent and freedom of conscience, however, puts him firmly in the modern camp. As with Solovyov, Dostoevsky's reliance on Russian Orthodox Christianity as a source of a uniquely Russian polity required a reform or at least a reinterpretation of Russian Orthodoxy itself. For Dostoevsky, Christianity centered around the human personalities, he liked to say, of Christ. Which, in its perfect combination of godlike and human characteristics, stands as an ideal for humanity. This idea of the sacred and unique character of each human personality, the Russian word is leechness, which might seem to have only religious significance in our society, in the Russia of the 19th century became a political statement. When we come to the role of art, and particularly the writer in politics, I think there's only one more thing I want to tell you. I want to tell you about this, though. Dostoevsky's position is, is perfectly consistent. Throughout the Brothers Karamazov, writers influence individuals in society for good or evil. The situation with Tolstoy is more complicated and even contradictory. It is no accident that the young Tolstoy read Montesquieu and his erstwhile disciple Catherine the Great. Did he not himself inspire to be a kind of enlightened despot? the more anti-political tolstoy's writings became the more he assumed the mantle of a moral and therefore a political leader often compared to an old testament prophet he became a jeremiah whose moral influence rivaled that of the tsar <clears throat> he defined the task of art in these later days as the expression of true knowledge which he claimed has always been religious he himself so he's the one he is the one who conveys this true knowledge, he himself in those years produced both true knowledge in the form of various religious and philosophical tracts, as well as works of art illustrating these. Receiving people from all over the world at Yasinia Polyana, commenting personally on significant political events, he was acting like a Dostoevskyan elder. One could say in fact, that because he rejected institutionalized religion, and specifically the church, he, even more than a Zosima, concentrated authority in himself. Gorky said of Tolstoy that he and Tolstoy, he and God were like two bears in one den. And he compared Tolstoy to a pagan god. And I myself, visiting Tolstoy's graveyard, grave site in Jasne, at Yasnepalyana, in the fall of 1998, when I was grown up enough to appreciate it, instead of when I visited it back in the 1970s. I felt that the great mound in the woods resembled the grave of a Karlalian hero who seems to have disappeared into nature without returning to dust like ordinary men. Both Tolstoy and Dostoevsky were well aware of the temptations, and this is the, the difference between us and them. They know this. I'm telling you this, but I, I don't have anything over them because I'm telling you. They know it. Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, they were aware of the temptations that beset great writers and leaders, perhaps Tolstoy more than Dostoevsky in this respect. I think Dostoevsky thought of himself more as, as a prophet. This is why Dostoevsky, however, encourages us to contemplate Zosima and the Grand Inquisitor as doubles. It's there in the book. George Steiner, in a memorable tour de force, actually equated Tolstoy with the Grand Inquisitor. Tolstoy tackled this problem of his politics by vigorously denigrating the personality of the writer, of his own older brother Nikolai, who died young and whom he worshipped, for instance. Tolstoy said that he would have been a better writer than himself, Nikolai would have, but that he lacked the vices and especially the vaingloriousness necessary to become one. Again, like Dostoevsky, the older Tolstoy stressed that great poets are not simply better than other people. as he he once put it, they do not sit on Olympus. On the contrary, they are great in vice as well as in virtue, and their lessons are conveyed through their struggles, which they purvey for us, which they portray for us in their works. It's significant that the specific vice of poets, according to Tolstoy, is vanity, the lowest manifestation of that political passion of love of glory. Let's turn for a minute to that speech of Prince Andrei, my beloved speech, my, my beloved Andrei too, before the battle of Austerlitz. André dreams of glorious deeds even as he confronts the possibility of death and defeat. Well, and then, asked the other voice, if before then you are not wounded 10 times over, killed or betrayed, well, what then? Well, then, Prince Andrei ans- answered himself, i don't know what will happen and i don't want to know and i can't but i want this i want glory i want to be known to men i want to be loved by them it's not my fault that i want it and want nothing but that and live only for that yes for that alone i shall never tell anyone but we're listening (laughs) but oh god what am i to do if i love nothing but fame and men's esteem death wounds, the loss of family, I fear nothing. And precious and dear as many people are to me, father, sister, wife, those dearest to me, yet dreadful and unnatural as it seems, I would give them all up at once for a moment of glory, of triumph over men, of love for men I don't know and never shall know." These words, among the most beautiful in war and peace could only have been penned by a man who, though he like Prince Andrei, might never admit it to others, had himself felt the passion for glory which Andrei, of which Andrei speaks. The writer too desires the love of his fellow man and often sacrifices his private life for love for men whom he does not know and never will know. Tolstoy's aesthetics, based as they are on creating a perfect intimacy between writer and reader, would lead to a mutual love, which moreover, becomes Tolstoy's moral and political goal for everyone in his old age. So the desire to write is itself inspired by a love of glory, which as for Prince Andrei before Austerlitz, no threat can banish. This final part of my talk is not intended as a put down of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky or even of their political thought. The love that they wished would unite all men is indeed an ideal that is, among other things, a vindication of our natural sociability. It's natural to want others to love us. That's obvious. Uh, The tricky part, as Tolstoy and Dostoevsky both knew, was to love others ourselves. Our Western democracies reflect our belief that in practice, men cannot love others as they love themselves, and therefore we need a political system based on laws and contracts to dispense justice. Such a regime struck 19th century Russians as spiritually bankrupt, unable to satisfy their deepest social needs. It seemed to them that it produced self-satisfied earth-brown citizens with no redeeming social virtues. Tolstoy and Dostoevsky proposed political solutions that would overcome what we take, we Americans, Canadians, what we take to be an insoluble tension between society and the individual, and I would say Americans more than Canadians, because in this respect, Americans really are the most radical, even today, on this, on this front. But if Tolstoy and Dostoevsky's politics strike us as utopian, we can still learn from them, both about what men really want from their social institutions, and about the inherent and necessary imperfection of our own political systems, no matter what they may be. So Russian literature as represented by its two greatest novelists has something to teach us about the fundamental issues in politics. And we can also learn something about modern Russian culture inasmuch as it was partly formed by these writers and formed them, uh, the previous culture formed them and continues to be influenced by them. The Christian and moral coloration of individualism as Tolstoy and Dostoevsky embraced it makes it distinctly different from the Western variety Stripped of their cultural context, these two writers have been read in the West as advocates of varieties of individualism, like existentialism with Dostoevsky, for instance, that they would never have condoned. This misreading is especially ironic in view of the fact that both of them are consciously reacting to Western notions of individualism and correcting these. The politics of the two writers, too, can only be understood in the light of their distinctively Russian interpretation of the relation of the individual and society. This interpretation has much to teach us, but taken whole in all its utopian radicalism, it actually contributes in Russia to the cynicism of Russian politics by setting impossible goals. So when contemporary Russians return to their 19th century Russian thinkers and writers, they resume a an especially Russian train of thought from which one can hope an especially Russian form of democracy may someday emerge, maybe. But radical thought by itself cannot hope to establish a decent regime. Political compromise and economic stability will be necessary, and for these, Russia may have to turn again to Russian, to Western liberal models, which they have traditionally spurned. Thank you very much. I leave, right?